daring duck adventurer, Quake Maximum, was on a solo exploration mission in his home dimension when he was pulled in and swallowed by a wormhole. Hurled across a chasm of space and time, he finds himself deposited outside a strange and unfamiliar planet, Earth. Quack's ship, the Voyager, now stranded in a cloud of satellites high above the planet, uses the sophisticated equipment on board to instantly collect the data transmitted by humanity. His mission continues, cataloging the unknown universe and beyond hoping with each transmission to find a way home. This is our race. Broadcasting, but at least we're recording to the archive. <sighs> All right, we'll send this out on a delay later. Anyway, <laughs> hey guys, Quack here again. Uh, maybe you guys remember from last time. It's been a little bit, but we had a bit of an accident getting ready to watch through the California Raisins and the whole of the ship was lanced with a micrometeorite. So, you know, good news, bad news, good news. Good news, the hull was easily repaired. Bad news, it lodged directly into the number two data bank. Also good news, I got so many backups of this data that I can lose one databank. It's not a big deal. It's just I would make sure I got everything off of that into the backup first. This has been a little bit doing repairs, getting everything back up and running. And while I was doing it, I kept getting an eerie feeling. And I know it's ridiculous because I've done all this research. You don't have any alien life forms. There's nothing here that's not on your planet already, so nothing could have got in my ship. I just kept feeling like I'm hearing things, which reminded me of one of the first things I saw broadcast to my ship when I landed in the Milky Way. Funny enough, it was the movie Alien. Absolutely fascinated by this film. The design of the alien is something that was so frightening, even though you weren't able to see it throughout most of the film. Just the evolutions of it, the way you didn't know what it was going to be next, was... I, I'd never seen anything like that before. It was really interesting. 
The designs of the Alien also went through several different iterations, with director Ridley Scott bringing in concept artist H.R. Giger to help develop and create an alien based on an image he saw in the Necronomicon. Though it seems that H.R. may not have been up to quite all of the task. I can draw, and uh, he can really draw, and uh, so I knew, uh, the first argument was about what the big boy would look like, and uh, I thought this Necronomicon shot was incredible. It was the most beautiful version of anything I, I, like that, threatening alien. If you're gonna do an alien there, it was. And I just stuck to my gun and said, nope, nope, nope. He said, but I can change this. I said, no, that's great. And uh, we built him a little, he had a stage. One of the, in those days, a 10,000 square foot stage, which was a vast studio. So we, we cut it in half and gave him a 5,000 square foot lockup. And in there he had his bones and his skulls and his gristle and his sinews. And, um, and he would be in there all day with Mia, his assistant, basically trying to build a full-sized model of this guy, that, or this creature that you see, this beautiful creature that you see at Necronomicon. Um, so that was in process. So, you know, if you've got it, don't, don't fix it. And that's, that's always my opinion. And one of the biggest problems I had, apart from the, the fact that I thought the script was terrific, um, biggest concern for me wasn't casting the movie, it was having the, that, the bad guy. It was having the alien. How bad can this creature be? Because if we hadn't had a, you know, a really um, interesting beast, um, then you'd have had half the movie. And uh, so he would build this full-size, full-scale, almost seven feet tall model and uh, refine it on a daily basis. Meanwhile, we were getting on with the other things, like the face hugger, the um, chest burster, the, uh, in the egg, and, um, and uh, the only thing that Giga had a problem with was the chest burster. And uh, he designed something one day. A great frustration appeared in my office with his large black bag over his arm. He's obviously hiding something. And um, he said, so, I've done it. I said, so, what's it look like? And he said, you want to see it now? I said, sure. Okay. So, <laughs> slowly peels black back his black bag. And it actually looked like he stuck his hand, if you excuse the expression, up the ass of a turkey. There was this lumpy turkey with his teeth at the end, and he just looked at me like that, saying, no good, huh? I said, don't think so. I'm trying to work out how I get that inside of John Hurt's chest. It's like a 24-pound turkey. <laughs> he said, okay, this is impossible. I can't get that. I must concentrate on all the other things. So we then brought in this guy, Roger Dickin. Actually lived out near Windsor somewhere. Again, lived in a house that looked like Dracula lived in. It was, all these guys are really bizarre. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyone who's a special effects person, prosthetic person, I didn't really mean that. And um, uh, he, we came up with a beast, the little beast that came out the chest. Other than that, Giga was uh, brilliant. Always on time, ahead of the game, and uh, brought in finally Carlo Rambaldi to build the mechanics of the head, really, because eventually the difficulty was putting, how do you put a, w in those days you don't have that latex um, strength to put over a skinny enough body, because that's all I can do. I've got no CGI to build a creature. Now you can, you know, trigger it into the CGI and you just paint the thing. 
the chestburster being the one item that H.R. Giger had such a difficult time creating himself is very interesting because it's one of the most memorable creatures in the entire film. There's several myths surrounding the filming of this, including the myth that none of the cast knew outside of John Hurt what was going to happen to him during the scene. This is a bit of a misnomer. The whole cast had read the script, so they knew something was going to happen. But I'll let John Hurt tell it to you. How did he do it? Well, <laughs> there was a, a lot of writhing around and early and so on. Uh, that's easy. That's sort of, uh, that's just fun. But then, if you right towards the end, there is a, there's a cut. I can't remember if it's across the table or it's a cut to someone. But anyway, that was the changing point. It's Ian, it's Ian Hall. It's the cut mm -hmm. to Ian, I think. Yes, I think it does at the end. When you come back, uh, you, you only see the top half of me. Yeah. And the t that's, so they, actually, I was bent double under a hole in the table. Right. And the body was built on down like that, right? And this is pre-CGI. So when we were working it out, this is, the cast wasn't on the set then at that time. We were working it out, and I was lying there with the body out here somewhere. And the two prop men, it's on the end of a stick. <laughs> the actual when it comes through, you know, until, until you get to cut into the, the, the uh, animated thing itself, which is yeah. a separate shot altogether. Yeah. But the actual burst through is a, it's on the end of a stick. And it's wonderful, isn't it? It's, it's the simplest things, you know. And it got one prop man under the table who was pushing, like, you know, <laughs> coming through, yeah, Al? <laughs> no, Eric, I can't see nothing. <laughs> Hang on, Alf. Is it coming through yet? Yeah, oh, that looks more like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on, push it a bit harder. And I pushed it a bit harder and it went through. He said, that's it, that's your way to do it. Eh? So that's actually how it was done. Um, and then the cast was brought back in again. Right. And so on. But what, well, eventually. Uh, and of course, it's the myth has it that they didn't know what was going to happen. Well, of course they knew what was going to happen because they read the script. Yeah. But um, they didn't know how it was going to happen. You see, it's fact and truth again. Uh, and how it was going to happen was very different because uh, they put little explosive caps and really used about five, five six cameras, I think, yeah. on that scene. So they should have guessed something was going to happen because you don't use in a film that many cameras yeah. unless you want to catch something uh, in different sizes or, or, or with everybody, you know? Well, it was poor Veronica Cartwright that got the, the majority of it, wasn't it? She, sure, she was wonderful, you see. I think. Veronica, I think, was wonderful in that film, I'll say. And the funny thing is... There's a lot more of her originally, too. Oh, really? Mm. The funny thing about the film is that... <laughs> Joe Sigourney saw it. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, I see. <coughs> John, you're among friends. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. It's a long time ago now. Nobody would mind me saying that. Ooh, <laughs> a little bit of gossip about Sigourney Weaver there at the end. Sounds like maybe as a young actress, she was a little insecure, but... What the fuck? What is that? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, computer. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna need you to start closing every door behind me 
when I'm running. All right, go. Open the armory door. Space Force? I didn't think they had a Space Force. I never heard about a Space Force. All right. All right. All right. Oh, I got one thing left. I don't even know if this is gonna work. I was only able to do it once. The planet I learned it on doesn't even exist anymore. Okay. Alright. Let's go. Get ready to open the gate. Find me at Quack Maximum on Twitter, Twitch, and Patreon. to time and place the podcast where we'll discuss italo calvino's novel invisible cities i'm joined in the studio here with my uh lovely co-host millie mealy she's also my fiance my roommate and she so likes to be described and so she's here in the studio um, if you can hear the cat uh, snore breathing, I apologize. He's just so loud. Cute, but loud. Yeah, there's also a couple cats here, so 
we are hanging out, um, and we're going to talk about Italo Calvino's novel, Invisible Cities. Um, so in this book, um, just as an overview, uh, the frame of the story is that Marco Polo is telling his emperor, his the person who has hired him, Kublai Khan, um, and um, is telling him the tales of all the cities that he's been to and sort of the peculiar peculiarities. Um, and so each of the chapters gets at a sort of, sort of a way of understanding, a way of meaning, of experience, so to speak. Oh, okay. So it's like this guy's telling this other guy like stories about things he's experienced on his various adventures. I suppose you could say that. Um, you could definitely say this guy, Marco Polo or Kublai Khan. Marco. <laughs> That's right. You didn't say it. You gotta say it. Polo. No, I'm sorry, Benedict. Come back. Ugh. The snore has left. So. Okay. Um, so here's the first part of that framing segment now. This is the first sort of narrative portion that we get in the book um, that sort of sets the stage for um, our adventures to come. So why don't we just go ahead and take a listen? Kublai Khan does not necessarily believe everything Marco Polo says when he describes the cities visited on his expeditions. But the Emperor of the Tartars does continue listening to the young Venetian with greater attention and curiosity than he shows any other messenger or explorer of his. In the lives of emperors there is a moment which follows pride in the boundless extension of the territories we have conquered, and the melancholy and relief of knowing we shall soon give up any thought of knowing and understanding them. There is a sense of emptiness that comes over us at evening, with the odor of the elephants after the rain and the sandalwood ashes growing cold in the braziers, a dizziness that makes rivers and mountains tremble on the fallow curves of the planospheres where they are portrayed, and rolls up, one after the other, the dispatches announcing to us the collapse of the last enemy troops, from defeat to defeat, and flakes the wax of the seals of obscure kings who besiege our army's protection, offering in exchange annual tributes of precious metals, ten hides, and tortoise shell. It is the desperate moment when we discover that this empire, which has seemed to us the sum of all wonders, is an endless, formless run. That corruption's gangrene has spread too far to be healed by our scepter, that the triumph over enemy sovereigns has made us the heirs of their long undoing. Only in Marco Polo's accounts was Kublai Khan able to discern, through the walls and towers destined to crumble, the tracery of a pattern so subtle it could escape the termites not in. All right, and thank you. Um, that was the voice of Heather. Um, so um, thank you to Heather. Um, I think that passage really sort of introduces the the narrative and what we're about to get really well. Um, and I think it's one of the things that, I guess, in between all these individual stories, so each of the chapters is sort of a, a vignette, a little... Um, a, a passage, if you will. A little amuse-bouge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say that. Um, yeah, amuse-bouge. Um, so, what... 
I was so distracted by the voice. I actually couldn't really pick up anything besides elephants. Uh, she was saying about the elephant's odor and how it's, I don't know, good or bad, or it's, it's an experience, I suppose. Um, it's an experience in the sort of, in the grand scheme of things that in those moments where you just remember things, you sort of just take stock But yeah, I mean, I think it speaks really well to just the sort of the empire building, I guess, or sort of how how that perspective, it really is just sort of, uh, let me get go to the text just so I can reference it. Mm -hmm. So what is that basically saying? I guess it's, it's talking about the way that um, the way that we really understand the, the the world to be really corrupt and it's the way that we understand all of it's the way that the mask comes off right it's the way that uh, we sort of understand that no matter how good we do or no matter how triumphant we are that we're not sort of we're not necessarily like that those moments aren't necessarily triumph isn't necessarily good because although like in those experiences they're talking about uh collapse and defeat and flakes of wax from obscure kings and all this sort of this emptiness where there's no it's a sort of alienation there's no sort of meaning like yeah like, like the 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 emperor who all these people are fighting for is so disconnected sort of is so like what are you fighting for right because and it's, and it's so, lonely at the top right and so it talks about yeah that that sort of Drake is that in the way that is Drake do the lonely at the top I have no idea Ugh. I wish you um, were cooler yeah so I mean I guess just the I guess part of it to me too is the importance of the the, imper the 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 importance of i guess subjective meaning and sort of understanding experience and perspective and because i don't know sometimes i think it can take in order to truly know a situation how can you really truly know a situation right but just in terms of thinking about a situation bunch of people can be experiencing the same thing at the same time but have different beliefs and just going back to the to the reading that you do sort of I guess the point is that in the emptiness there isn't really it's not necessarily all this emptiness is that all this all like even though it's emptiness to Kublai Khan even though it's just 
emblems moving around on a board, we're about to get a whole lot of meaning making. And so, buckle up. Um, before we do that, we'll hear from some sponsors. Hi, I'm Cheesy Bobeasy. I'd like to tell you a few things that uh, I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. I'm a fan of my mom. She's got my back. I'm a fan of hot chocolate. I'm a fan of handwritten letters. I'm a fan of classic movies. I'm a fan of looking sharp regardless of the occasion. I'm a fan of random encounters. I'm a fan of traveling by train. I'm a fan of equal opportunities for all. I'm a fan of mischief. I'm a fan of being exactly who I want to be. And I'm a fan of Flippy Doo Skate Company. Stay flippy. Cities in memory one. Leaving there and proceeding for three days toward the east, you reach Daimira, a city with 60 silver domes, bronze statues of all the gods, streets paved with lead, a crystal theater, a golden cock that crows each morning on a tower. All these beauties will already be familiar to the visitor, who has seen them also in other cities. But the special quality of this city for the man who arrives there on a September evening, when the days are growing shorter and the multicolored lamps are lighted all at once at the doors of the food stalls and from a terrace a woman's voice cries ooh, is that he feels envy toward those who now believe they have once before lived an evening identical to this and who think they were happy that time. And so I think something about this book that I, each time I read it, I'm struck by it, is that you sort of, you get called to these, it's almost like these chapters sort of call out to certain memories and, I don't know, they, they speak to certain ways and certain feelings or whatever, right? Certain feelings. Um... And I think that last bit, the he feels envy towards those who now believe that they have once before lived an evening identical to this and who think they were happy that time. And so he's talking about this sort of pure, this special quality, talking about this special quality and sort of. It's not sort of, it's not some grand spectacle. It's not some grand thing that's going on. It's a day that's growing shoulder. The multicolored lamps are out. Food stalls are bustling. The terrorists, the woman. It's just sort of the experience of being there in the moment and sort of looking around and experiencing that. And I think... Um, yeah, just, um, it's almost that feeling of nostalgia. I talked to Joe about this chapter a little bit before, um, and he mentioned nostalgia, and I think it really does bring that sort of concept to the table. 
and sort of you think about why you remember certain things and a lot of it's trauma and a lot of it's I don't know why do we have memories of anything right but I guess there's a like to me this chapter reminds me of when we got engaged like I just will never be able to sort of I won't be able to remember the special quality of that without sort of perceiving the the wind and the all the people there there's so many people it was fucked up but <laughs> don't say that <laughs> i mean it was good obviously but uh Close was fucked oh no i spilled um sorry back to um but yeah i mean i just i think about getting my camera bag out and sort of all the things that I had to do that I was sort of taking in that it would, but it was, I mean, it was an experience. And in that case, I mean, that is a spectacle, but uh, it's just those moments where, I don't know, people had, I'd, I'd obviously seen people's proposals. I know that proposals exist, but I had never done it. And so it's just, I guess that sort of that feeling of, Oh, like that's that special you know like i planned it i did it i i did it i did the damn thing not even to me i mean i, I there's definitely something to that but also just sort of i guess i guess being, being able to like being out of i don't know like to me it's just a matter of having the clarity to recognize all the things and be present enough, I guess. And so I think it's just, I don't know, to me, I, I think there is something about sort of the leisure. Not, really taking it in. Right, exactly, just sort of. Yeah. I feel like that has gone a lot better since, um, just like with anxiety, just trying to control that and trying to find a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, definitely something to me is that in the book there's a lot of sort of subjectivity and but it speaks very well to the uh it doesn't sort of take for granted that some positions in some cities or some realms of within cities uh, it, it sort of i guess as we as we go throughout the story we'll see the way that it sort of treats um, all these qualities. I wish you wouldn't look at the screen. It's fine. How could they possibly know happiness? Because, um, or how could something be identical so many times? I guess with it's, happiness for different people. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you just said. Like the uh, the different people aspect, because like. To him, it's like he's experiencing this like pure, like it's it's cl clearly it's the best thing that's ha it's the best happiness he's had, mm -hmm. and so to him, just it sort of breaks the measurement scale. It's almost just like you, it's just 
And I think that's why it sort of speaks to the importance of this subjective narrative because we don't have we don't all perceive sort of greatness or sort of all these great days all the best, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm going to um, move us along to the second uh, portion, which is going to be um, the second or the third chapter, um, Cities in Memories 3. Um, so Heather will take us away. Cities in Memory 3. In vain, great-hearted play shall I attempt to describe Zaira, city of high bastions. I could tell you how many steps make up the streets rising like stairways, and the degree of the arcade's curves, and what kind of zinc scales cover the roofs. But I already know this would be the same as telling you nothing. The city does not consist of this, but of relationships between the measurements of its space and the events of its past. The city, however, does not tell its past, but contains it like the lines of a hand, written in the corners of the streets, the gratings of the windows, the banisters of the steps, the antennae of the lightning rods, the poles of the flags, every segment marked in turn with scratches, indentations, scrolls. To me, this chapter really stuck out and I think is a... It reminds me a lot of identity in the way that... I don't know... It reminds me a lot of the way, especially with social media, that we sort of, I don't know, I think everyone sort of comes to be defined by certain, or would want to be sort of defined by or sort of conceives of being identified as having done something or with a certain label or, I don't know, I think, I, th I guess, I, I guess I think this... <clears throat> I think this chapter speaks to identity in the way that even if we might not have the words to describe our identity perfectly or we're not using the words to describe our identity even if we have them or whatever like I think it just goes to show that sometimes all of that information is sort of behind the scenes it's sort of it's there for people to get it's there to be understood. It's just, I guess, maybe it's a little bit behind the scenes, you know? It just, it just needs to be discovered. Wait, are you still, are we still talking about this one right here? That, um... Be the same as telling you nothing consists of yeah. city consists of relationships. See, at the end part, I took that as more like you know how, you know when you're like in high school and like, you do all the stupid shit around town and like every time you go back to your hometown, you're like, oh that's the fucking lamppost that like, uh, Damien hit that one time we were riding bikes in. July of 1998. Yeah. And that's what I took it as. Like, yes, I could tell you that my hometown has a 99 and that, you know, it's the most boring place on earth, but that, again, tell you nothing. But I'm still gonna, like, when I drive you around my hometown, I'm gonna show you all that stupid little shit I did because it meant something to me 
And I guess that I'm part of the town's history. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. That's what I took from it because I didn't have a very deep meaning. I thought of the dumbest shit that related to it. No, I mean I, I uh no, I mean I think that's spot on. I think I don't know, ultimately I think the book is is set up in such a way that we all are able to to learn. I mean, the the best books are, but I think it just sort of it allows you to sort of relate it to a lot of things that I think. Um, Yeah, no, I think what you said is spot on. Like the way that we describe something doesn't matter. What matters is the way that something is and sort of its history and how it became what it is and all of that and so I guess my takeaway is not to sort of discount that yeah like it's not so much the property and the structure it's more of the people and who have experienced what in those properties because like yeah right who gives a shit about a building it's like what fucking happened to those people in the building yeah Okay, so now we will move on um, to our second ad break. Times have been tough lately, and it can be hard to not feel a little bit helpless. What, with all these things going on? That's why in lieu of a normal advertisement, Flippy Doosecape Company is asking you to vote. Just vote. It's the one way that we as humans can help to improve the world, or rather, this hell world. So whether you're mailing it in, calling it in, or voting in person, make sure to vote in the upcoming BuzzTake matchup. At Flippy-Doo, we believe every voice matters. It's a BuzzTake? So I did interview my colleague, Joe Silcox, um, who has actually just published a research article um, on the social psychology of time. Um, Would have been a really great uh, get for this podcast. Um, I did interview, we did sit down, um, and it ended up sort of um, had a death in the family. This semester has been really... uh, thrown me for a loop and so the conversation didn't go very well to the point that I didn't want to look at it until way too late and so um rather than sort of uh worry about splicing that and I'm already out of time this is late and so um I will leave uh I'll I think Joe has one comment uh, um and then um There'll be an outro, and I appreciate everyone's patience. But, uh, flippy do, flippy the vote. As a scholar of time, as someone who is actively engaged in the, um, the academic scholarship process around sort of understanding time. Do you have any takeaways? Like what should, what's your key takeaway concept, understanding um, time really? Like what, what do you think? What's your big point? 
biggest illusions here is this idea that we have any sort of real control over time. Because um, time is this large infinite <laughs> construct that we want to manage and we want to have control over, but it can also be something that we never have enough of. Yeah, you're telling me. As the seasons passed and his missions continued, Marco mastered the Tartar language and the national idioms and tribal dialects. Now his accounts were the most precise and detailed that the great Khan could wish and there was no question or curiosity which they did not satisfy. And yet each piece of information about a place recalled to the emperor's mind that first gesture or object with which Marco had designated the place. The new fact received a meaning from the emblem and also added to the emblem a new meaning. Perhaps, Kible thought, the empire is nothing but a zodiac of the mind's phantasms. On the day when I know all the emblems, he asked Marco, shall I be able to possess my empire, at last? And the Venetian answered, sire, do not believe it. On that day you will be an emblem among emblems. <laughs>